Well, good morning, church. I encourage you, even though you may be at home, to grab a Bible off of your uh, shelf or counter or kitchen or dining room table and open up uh, with me this morning to John chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be reading and looking at and studying, diving into verses 13 through 25. If you were uh, with us last week, um, we heard a, a great message on Jesus turning water into wine. Uh, this week, uh, the tone, uh, Jesus' emotions are a little different. We go from a, a private party where he performs a miracle uh, to, uh, let's just put it nicely, a public outrage. Um, as we just sang, uh, the lion and the lamb, we're going to see how Jesus puts a lion in that title of the lion and the lamb. So I want to uh, start out this morning just by reading the text and then uh, looking forward to diving in. Look along with me to John chapter 2, verse 13. John writes, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. This is God's word for us today. Now, usually when I dive into a text, I like to envision it uh, kind of like a pool. We're going for a swim, okay? I like to walk down the steps into the shallow end, uh, maybe do a few laps. Those are maybe checkpoints, my main points of the sermon. And then after our, our long swim, we're tired, we sit back, we look. What do we learn from this? Well, today, we're on the diving board already, and we're just going to jump in to the deep end. And it may feel like we're treading, uh, we're swimming around in the deep end for a bit, but after we tread and get all tired, we're going to sit back and look and see what we've learned. So I encourage you to stay with me as we tread for just a little bit. The main thrust of this passage really hinges upon two concepts, the temple 
and worship. And really could be combined into one term, temple worship. It's where the passage physically takes place, and it's the main subject of Jesus' polarizing statement. The temple has been a huge theme in the Old Testament, all the way from uh, the time of, of Moses until now. The Old Testament is filled with instructions on how to build the temple, who can go in, what kind of sacrifices are accepted, what's contained inside, and why. The temple's function thus far in the life of Israel has been to provide a place where people can worship God, can access his presence, maintain a right relationship with him through sacrifice and ritual to atone for their sin. So here we are. Jesus is making his way up to Jerusalem, as it says in verse 13, where the temple is located because it's Passover. Now, Passover is one of the busiest times of the year in Jerusalem. Uh, If this helps at all, think of it like this. Passover is like a massive, massive family reunion, okay? But it's actually a family reunion that all family members want to go to. The population of Jerusalem around this time is 100,000. But during the time of Passover, which is a week-long festival, the population of Jerusalem grew to about 300,000 people. And actually, if you're a Jewish male over uh, 15 years old and you live within 15 miles of Jerusalem, uh, it is, many commentators believe that they were required to go up to Jerusalem during the Passover to offer sacrifices on behalf of, of their family, of offer, uh, sacrifices of thanksgiving to God. But this wasn't just for males. All families who had enough money were able to travel and attend this festival. They could make the pilgrimage as well. If you were Jewish, you did not want to miss this. Passover represents God's deliverance of Israel out of the wilderness. A reminder that God, that Yahweh is a God who saves and redeems. This was an opportunity to worship God in the midst of all of your family members, a happy, a joyous occasion, a thankful occasion. Imagine this scene. So Jesus, being a Jewish male, heads up to Jerusalem. And by the way, quick reminder, Jesus is a Jewish guy, immersed in this culture. He has friends. He builds stuff with his hands. He travels from city to city. Jesus isn't some dude with an entourage doing his own thing, waiting to go to the cross, just sitting back, doing nothing. He's living among his people. He's fully God, but he's also fully man. Something I believe we can tend to forget in our current context, or even as we read the Gospels. So he arrives at this temple, and the text says in verse 14, I'll put it up on the screen, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, there's actually a lot in that statement, in that little statement that's seemingly unimportant. It's important for us to understand how the temple courts were structured and set up because it reveals a lot about Jesus' reaction, about his statements that he makes that we're going to look at in just a moment. See, the temple courts were set up very carefully, and there were levels and layers of courts that only certain people could enter. We've got a picture, which oftentimes don't, doesn't come through great on the video, but we're going to try it again today. 
See, the temple is set up with all these different courts. I know you can't read these words, but this massive kind of court, courtyard area in the temple is the, the court of the Gentiles. Only Gentiles could go in this area that weren't allowed in, the, in the, the temple complex up here. It was also known as the outermost court or the lower court, if that tells you anything about what Jews thought about Gentiles. Next, moving inward, we have the court of the women. This was about 200 square feet. And if that tells you anything, it's that the women could not go past the court of women. And further inward, we have the court of the priest and then the court, excuse me, the court of the Israelites and then the court of the priest. Moving further in, we have the curtain and then we have the holy of holies. The reason for mentioning all of this is because the text tells us Jesus found money changers in those selling animals. Where, where was that? Many people believe Jesus was set up in the court of the Gentiles, kind of the more general area of a courtyard in this section. Other commentators believe maybe he was actually set up outside the temple, just along the edge of the, of the uh, western wall. And the point is not, oh, which one is it, so we can get it right. It doesn't change the authenticity of our text today. But the reason that it's important is because people had to buy animals or pigeons for sacrifice if they didn't bring one themselves, if they didn't travel with them. And even if they did bring animals themselves, they would have to get their animals, their sacrifices, inspected by those who worked in the temple. And oftentimes, the animals they brought were rejected, further contributing to these, this dirty business practice, making people buy new animals after the prices has been, have been jacked up and they've already gone to the temple. It's kind of like when you go to a sporting event and... You want to buy a Coke at a gas station because it's $1.50, and then you get inside, and you're like, oh, I want a Coke, and they're like, it's $8. But then they give you a souvenir cup as if that's totally worth it, which is just completely bogus. But anyway, we move on. So these folks selling animals for sacrifices were making a huge profit by jacking up the prices, and money changers were doing the same. Now, money changers, what were they doing? Everybody that went into the temple was required to pay a temple tax. This was a half shekel. This had to be in Jewish currency. Now, you had foreigners coming from all different lands with different kind of, kinds of currencies. So they had to go exchange what money they had for the Jewish currency so that they could pay the temple tax. Well, take a guess what the money changers did. They oftentimes would get at least another day's wage as profit. The temple tax really equated to about two days' wages, but they would charge so much they would get another day's wage out of it. So there is the scene. Now let's, let's get to some action. Verse 15. John tells us, And Jesus, making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Jesus wastes no time here. No discussion, no, uh, excuse me, fellas, could you grab your things and, and get out of here before things get out of hand? He just starts driving them out. If there's one verse, one verse in the Bible that I want a YouTube video of, it's this one. Feel free to, to uh, combat that. If you have another one, sure. I'm not changing my mind. I want John 2.15. This is insane. Now, there's no indication that Jesus uh, 
went deliberately to, to a certain booth or no particular one person. The text tells us he drove them all out, the animals, the birds, the people, everybody. He grabs the bags of the money changers filled with coins, dumps them out. You know what? That's not enough. Tables, flips them over. I mean, this is crazy stuff. Remember, we're at a family reunion here. We know family reunions can go bad, but this is real bad. He doesn't perform a miracle. He doesn't heal anyone. He doesn't possess unusual strength. He's actually, this is actually one of the more human moments we see from Jesus. He gets angry, but notice, it's righteous anger. It's not sin. We know that Jesus was without sin. So imagine this scene. Happy, joyous, special occasion, special time of year. But Jesus has stirred up the 300,000 person family reunion. So finally, after a silent storm, Jesus simply says, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. John tells us his disciples, which obviously they are with him at this point, which if I was Jesus' disciple, I'd be thinking, Oh, no, stop. Not a good idea. Don't want to be doing this. They remember Scripture. They remember Psalm 69, the words of King David. Zeal for your house will consume me. This is a reflection of David's, King David's heart for the temple. His, his desire for the Lord's house to be there, to be in the presence of God. But this is a prophetic fulfillment for Jesus is the greater David. No one can match the zeal that Jesus has for his father's house. All right. Let's keep swimming. Maybe we're, maybe we're treading already. Stay with me. This tirade becomes a conversation, finally, when some of the Jews decide to challenge Jesus, which this will not be the first time they challenge him. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Now, this statement can be a little tricky on the surface. Jews were all about signs all about proof. Paul in 1 Corinthians tells us that while Greeks sought wisdom, Jews demanded signs. But Paul says we preach Christ crucified. Essentially what the Jews are saying here is, hey dude, hey Jesus, prove to us that you're somebody that we should listen to, because otherwise we don't know who you are. So now we come to Jesus' response to the Jews' question of, prove to us that you're somebody. Jesus says these words in verse 19. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now let's, let's take off our Bible study glasses. Forget for a second that we know the whole story. Pretend that we're a Jew in 27 A.D., that we're, we've gone to the Passover, to the temple, and we hear this statement. Jesus is standing in a physical temple, and he says, here's proof for my authority. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. The Jews have no clue what he means. They say, wait, this, this temple that we've been building for 46 years, you will rebuild in three days? 
Little do they know that Jesus is speaking about his own body. Thanks to John's interpretation, we know this. We know Jesus is referring to his own body. Look with me at verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, I know, some of us are really treading right now. And you're asking, what does any of this mean for me? What does this mean for me? And this is what I want to say. Until you understand that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything, nothing in your life will make sense. Especially how to worship. See, the resurrection of Jesus transforms temple worship from a fixed place where external acts are performed to the heart of man, an inward location where desires are reshaped and reformed. The resurrection of Jesus transforms temple worship from an external place, from the temple from going to a physical place. He transforms it to an inward location, to our hearts, where then he begins to shape and reshape and form and reform our desires. You may say, David, you're not giving me anything to do. Just telling me something. Okay, how about this? Consider how you worship. What does it mean to live your life as a life of worship to God? See, without the resurrection, Jesus is just another dude that the Pharisees could sweep under the rug. Without the resurrection, followers of Jesus are the most to be pitied. Without the resurrection, there's no power in the name of Jesus. And without the resurrection, we're left to deal with our sin on our own. Without the resurrection, there is no hope. See, the Jews, they defile and desecrate this physical temple. But even more so, they ultimately destroyed the true temple, the body of Jesus. But Jesus shows us a greater sign. He just doesn't do it immediately in this conversation. He does it in a couple years. He raises his body from the grave. See, there's no bartering for Christ's blood here. They might be bartering and selling animals, but not Christ's blood. See, Jesus willingly gave himself up. You and I, we're just like the Pharisees, as much as we don't want to admit it. We try to act like Jesus doesn't have authority in our lives. We say, what sign, Jesus, do you show us? For having any authority in our life. We clutch and grasp the things we really don't want to let go. We're not exempt from the tendency to replace devotion to God with mere external acts, which we hope gain us a better standing with God, to get closer to Him. Sure, maybe we aren't burning animal sacrifices on the altar here in 2020, but there are certainly other ways our idols manifest themselves. So I want to ask you something I've been thinking about a lot this week. So what are, what are those idols for you? 
What are the things you're clutching onto? You're grasping, you're not letting go. Because you say, Jesus, you don't have authority there in my life. Maybe it's refusing to put in the extra effort in your marriage. Maybe it's holding a grudge over someone. Because how could they really do you like that? Maybe it's pornography or another addiction that you're hiding. Maybe it's your position or status in your company that you can't imagine losing. Maybe it's comfort or control or power or approval. I don't know what it is, but you know, and the Lord knows. See, Jesus brings a whip into these compartments of our lives, not because he wants to hurt us or threaten us, but because he desires that we live holy lives unto him. See, his passion, his righteous anger is a pathway for grace to come to us. He created each of us to be satisfied only by entering into a life-giving relationship with him. Yet we still challenge him every day. Jesus, who are you? Why do you have authority over me? Prove it to me. Prove to me that you're real. Boy, did he prove it to us through his sacrificial death and subsequent resurrection. His death is sacrificial. The word in Hebrew for sacrifice is a very interesting definition. Maybe you know. It literally means to get closer or something which draws close. When the Jews came to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices, they would have been holding their animals so close to them. They would have become so acquainted with them that they did not want to let them go. They didn't want to give them up. They paid for this. It was their animal. It was their sacrifice. But according to the law, it's a way for them to get closer to God. What we have to understand is that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice who doesn't just get us closer to God, but by the Spirit, our bodies become the dwelling place of God through faith. Hebrews 9 verse 12 tells us this, that the high priest would go in once a year to offer sacrifice for the sins of man, but Jesus offered his blood once and for all. Once and for all. For us. He makes us righteous before God. Jesus did this because he desires a relationship with those who he created. If you don't know him, he desires a relationship with you. Instead of having to attend a temple in order to meet with God, we can talk with him and pray to him wherever we are. And by the way, when we reopen this building next week, it's not the church that's reopening it. It's the building that's reopening. The church can't be closed. The church is made up of the people of God. Instead of only being able to worship in the temple at a building, we're called to worship him with our entire life. So Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 is all about. Offer yourselves, offer your bodies as living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable to him. You see, it's, it's all grace. He provides grace in a way that we would have never imagined. It's grace through a whip. It's grace through death. It's grace through destroying his body. And grace through raising it up. Because he destroyed his temple by his spirit, there's a new temple. And you are that temple. I am that temple. 
What a privilege. This is exactly what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 and 22. I'll put this on the screen. He says, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. See, how we worship ultimately reveals what we think about God. It reveals all of our thoughts about God. If we're always looking at our watch during worship, we're saying, God isn't worth all my time. I'll give him an hour, but hour 15. No, no, no. If our goal is to be funny during worship, we're admitting that using entertainment in the place of worship is a better retention strategy if it just keeps people engaged. If we treat those who give more money with better care or attention, then we're admitting we're more interested in our revenue streams than people being in a right relationship with our Savior. If we put no emphasis on welcoming the stranger, then we're admitting to being comfortable with the people we have, operating more like a club than a diversely unified, gifted body under the authority of Jesus. God forbid any of those statements be true of this church, but one thing is for certain. We must always be on guard. For man's heart is deceitful and sinful. It's what we see in verses 23 through 25. That's why Jesus doesn't fully entrust himself to man at this point, at the beginning of his ministry. He doesn't need anybody to bear witness about what is in man. He knows. He's experienced all the emotions, all the temptations we have. Yet he has not fallen. We have. See, when we open God's word and read it and dissect it, we're saying the revelation of God's word, what he's revealed about himself, is infinitely more important than any clever cultural tirade. When we create a space to confess and repent of our own sin, we show that God is, is worthy to be praised because he's created a bridge for us to access him. When we sing and lift up our voices, we're saying God is worthy of being exalted over all things. When we share the good news of the gospel, we're saying this invitation to follow Jesus doesn't depend on your job security or your 401k or your skin color or what you've done in the past. It's a free gift available to everybody. As the worship team makes their way up, I just want to close with this question. What if our passion for the Lord's house was like the passion that Jesus shows here? I don't mean just a passion to be in this building. Although that's, a, that's great. That's a godly passion to want to gather with fellow believers to sing and hear the word preached. To be physically with one another. But I mean, what if our passion for the Lord's house, in the sense of how we worship, what we do with our temple. I'm not advocating that we all make whips and drive the worldly desires out of people. Instead, may we be so enamored at the resurrection of Jesus that all we do and think is born out of that truth that God killed his own son to cleanse your body and give you everlasting life through faith in him. See, it takes belief, it takes trust in what Jesus did for us. It's one thing to know it. 
for, to believe it? What does it mean to you? What does Jesus mean to you? What would you tell a stranger if they came up and asked you that? See, Paul reiterates the same thing he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, three chapters later in chapter 6, verse 19. He says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. The price was Jesus' body and blood. And the gift? Eternal life with Him. What does Jesus mean to you? The temple is no longer a place we have to go to access God. We have that access through grace by faith in Jesus. Worship is not something we do on Sunday before brunch. It's how we conduct our entire lives. Worship reveals our hope is. The sad news this week of Robbie Zacharias passing, I want to share a quote with him from him. He says this, religion is an invitation to a place, but Christianity is an invitation to a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. Come to Jesus and be filled with his grace. Come to Jesus and be transformed by his love. Come to Jesus and be resurrected by his power. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, may we come to you this morning and give everything we have to you. Worship is giving all that we have to all that you are. Father, as we go from this place, would you put a fire in our hearts to be witnesses for you, to share the truth of the gospel, that you destroyed your temple, your body, your blood you shed for us. Father, use us as vessels, as broken vessels to make the gospel known, to make your kingdom expand in this world. Only by the power of your spirit can that happen. Father, we praise you for who you are and all the mighty things you've done for us and the ways you've blessed us. It's in the powerful resurrected name of Jesus. And I pray these things.